I used to, some of you know, I used to live near Chicago, uh, and if you ever get a chance to visit Chicago, I'd highly recommend going to the Museum of Science and Industry. It is fantastic, especially for kids. Uh, they have massive train displays, there's a weather simulator you can interact with, they have a full U-505 German submarine that you can go in and actually tour. My favorite exhibit uh, is a very masculinely named Fairy Castle. Uh, the fairy castle is wonderful. It's an intricately crafted miniature castle. I, I say miniature, but it actually takes up a whole room. It's about eight feet long and wide and tall. And it has a great hall. It's got dining rooms, bedrooms, and more. It has these beautiful little details like stained glass windows in the chapel and tiny little books with handwriting in them in the library. There's bathtubs and pianos and so forth. It, it looks like somebody actually lives there. And I love visiting the fairy castle whenever I'm there because you get to peer into these small spaces that just seem so real. It's like somebody just left the room, and it makes you wonder what would it actually be like to live in there. It's a window into this world with a lot of similarities with how we live, and yet there's also, of course, a lot of differences as well. And the fairy castle has been on my mind as an analogy for the book of 3 John. See, 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible uh, if you measure it by number of words in the original language. And if you're curious, the longest book of the Bible measured by words in the original language is Jeremiah. Just a little Bible trivia for you to impress your friends. Uh, Third John is a personal letter from the Apostle John to a man named Gaius, and it was likely a, a letter of introduction for one of John's co-workers named Demetrius. We'll talk about that in a bit. It has a, a short little greeting, some words of encouragement, a short warning about an issue in Gaius's church, and then a conclusion. It's just 219 words in the Greek. It's so short that it's the only New Testament book that doesn't mention Jesus by name is very, very brief. And yet, like the fairy castle, 3 John gives us a glimpse into what it would have been like to be a Christian who lived in the earliest days of the church. It shows us how people lived, what were their struggles, what did it look like to follow Jesus just 30 or 40 years after Jesus died. But, but 3 John is not just a, a, an interesting historical document that we can think about. You know, what was it like in the past? It has immense relevance for today. Uh, I sometimes talk with folks who ask whether there was a time in history that has lessons and, and precedents for our time in history in the 21st century. See, there's a lot of unique things in our present age, especially technology, and there's a lot of global events going on. Was there a time in history that was similar to now, or is our age truly unprecedented? And I'm not the first one to think this, but I think there are a lot of cultural similarities between the church in the West today and the very earliest churches in the first and second centuries. See, in the first and second centuries, the church didn't have much social or political power. And while that's not entirely the case now in America, it will likely become more and more that way, for better and for worse. Uh, in the first and second centuries, the church existed in a pluralistic society, meaning there were many different ideas and worldviews all mixing together and sometimes clashing together. And then the church lived in that space as a unique kind of counterculture providing a different kind of message and a different way of life that was both compelling and challenging. 
And there were a few key factors in the early church that kept them faithful to Jesus. They were known as a close-knit community. They loved each other well. They agreed on their core doctrines, and they didn't waver from them. They acted consistently with their faith, so they were trying over and over again to root out hypocrisy in their life. And they lived as good citizens that sought the welfare of their city. In other words, both the church in the past and the church today must embody truth and love. That's what Pastor Kyle taught us last week as we looked at 2 John. We must embody truth and we must embody love. We embody truth by keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of all that we do. And then we embody love as we care for one another and the vulnerable around us. So now, Second John, or sorry, now Third John is going to build on what we learned in Second John, and it's going to give us some very practical categories of what does that actually look like? How do we embody truth and love? So I think that we really need this book of Third John. It, it gives us a picture of how we, as a church at Rock Hill, can embody both of these things. So the main question that we are asking this morning is, what does it look like when we embody truth and love in the church? Very practically, what does it look like here? This short little letter can be divided into two parts. You have encouragement in the beginning and warning at the end. We're going to read the book. Guys, we're going to read the whole book of 3 John today. Ooh, buckle up. Uh, and then we're going to talk through it under those headings. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 3 John. It's probably just on one page. 3 John, verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth." I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God." Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be with you. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Short little letter. Let's look at the first part, the encouragement part. The Apostle John is writing this letter to a man named Gaius, as we said. He might have been a church leader or a, a host in a small house church. So just like Philemon, Third uh, John was not written to an entire church, like the letter to the Galatians. Rather, it was written to an individual person with the expectation that he would share it with the whole church. And also like Philemon, Third John was written with a lot of 
warmth in it. I mean, Philemon had some complexity with the slave-master dynamic, uh, but Third John is very obviously written with warmth as well. John knew Gaius, which is obvious from the very first line. Did you notice, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray. Just notice he's laying it on thick with the love early on, three times already. I pray that, it may, that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Or in other words, I heard that your soul, your spiritual life, your discipleship with Jesus is going well. And I long that everything else in your life, your, your body, your mind, your relationships, your work, and so on, that that might be healthy as well. In 1947, a preacher in Oklahoma opened his Bible at random to ask God to speak to him. And the first verse that his eyes fell on was verse 2 of 3 John. Uh, this man took the verse to be a prompting of the Spirit to begin what he called, quote, whole person prosperity. Essentially, he began to teach that God desires above all things that Christians would have the fullness of prosperity here and now, wealth, health, and happiness today. That man's name was Oral Roberts. Maybe you've heard his name. He became one of the founders of what's known as the prosperity gospel movement. Uh, Kyle mentioned it last week because it's one of the most common false teachings from the Bible that's around today. And I want to mention it again because this particular verse has been so misunderstood. It, it, John's prayer is not a promise that God will give prosperity to His people here and now. That's reading far too much into one verse. It's just bad theology. In fact, that kind of teaching directly contradicts Jesus' words about poverty and generosity. No, this is a simple prayer for shalom, for God to bring wholeness and wellness to every area of a person's life, while also acknowledging that things aren't going to go well all the time. Life is not forever, and even when things are not going well, God is still sovereign and He's still good. So, I want you to see verse 2 not as a promise, but that actually is a really good prayer for us to imitate as we pray for one another. You know, my beloved friends, I know that your spiritual life is going well. I've been praying for that, and I'm also praying that everything else would go well too. Or John summarizes it this way in verse 15, the last verse of this letter, peace be with you. That's another way of saying the same thing, just shorter. The rest of John's encouragement concerns a group of traveling missionaries whom he calls the brothers. So, Gaius doesn't know them, but they've given a good report to John about Gaius's church and how they've been welcomed in despite being strangers. As I mentioned before, the letter of 3 John was likely meant to introduce one of these missionaries named Demetrius, who probably carried the letter to Gaius. And in fact, some even think that 3 John was kind of a cover letter that was bundled together with 1 John, and they were delivered together to the church and then passed around to other churches. Uh, look again at verse 3, where John describes the report from the missionaries. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. 
So Gaius showed hospitality to these Christians who were going town to town, spreading the gospel and the good news about Jesus. Gaius was warm and welcoming and kind. He was meeting their needs, opening his home. See, in the ancient world, there were inns, but they had a kind of a shady reputation, so usually Christians would avoid them. And if you were traveling as a Christian, you would either sleep out in the open or you'd rely on the generosity of a stranger inviting you in or somebody that you knew. Think about Mary and Joseph, where their best option in Bethlehem was an animal stall. And in biblical cultures, hospitality wasn't exactly like we think of it today. See, we normally think about hospitality as hosting. I've got a guest coming. I need to make sure that their needs are cared for, and I'm kind of entertaining them. And that, that was a dynamic of hospitality. But in the ancient world, there was an extra layer there where hospitality also meant that you take on the responsibility for that person's behavior and their character. Their reputation affects your own. So it, it could actually be a very risky thing inviting someone into your home, especially if you don't know them. They could burn your entire social network with just a wrong word that offends people. Another common practice, uh, not in Christian churches but wider in the culture, is that you would only invite someone into your home if they could offer something to you, like a social status. So you'd invite the wealthy and the high in society but if you invited a poor or a lowly person, people would start to whisper, maybe see you as the same as them. But these missionaries, poor as they were, received nothing but love from Gaius and his community. And John says, this is proof that you are walking in the truth. That's wild. That's, that's so strange. I, I see your generosity and hospitality, Gaius, and it is a sign that God has changed your hearts through the gospel of grace. See, God gave us Himself when Jesus lived and died and rose again out of His generous love for people who were utterly undeserving, and that good news frees us to be generous as well. John follows up his praise with an encouragement to keep supporting these people who are giving up comfort, giving up financial security for the sake of telling people the good news about Jesus. So he says in verse 6, to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. There's no higher calling than that. A manner worthy of God. Verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. It was very important for early Christians that they didn't show non-Christians that they were following Jesus because it paid well. They didn't, they didn't want that to be the reputation of Christians, so they didn't ask for donations from non-Christians. And that's, that's our practice here at the church. If you're visiting, I'm really glad you're here. When the offering bowls come by, please don't feel compelled to drop anything in that. We don't expect anything from you. We're just really glad you're here, and we want to welcome you in here. But rather, John says, we in the church ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And notice there how truth and love lead to one another. The truth that we believe of the generous gospel leads us to practical acts of love. And when we are loving one another, we are partnering together in the work of the gospel for the truth. Now, remember that our main question was, what does it look like when we embody truth and love together as a church? And here we have one answer to that question from John. It looks like generous hospitality. Generous 
hospitality. Let me take that first word first, generous. Generosity is being lavish and open with our resources because all we have comes from God. It's His. And so just like God was not stingy in His love for us, we're called to use whatever we receive from God for the welfare of others. So when missionaries and church planners today have needs to continue their work, they should be able to count on the generosity of fellow Christians who will send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So in the biblical worldview, uh, giving to others is not primarily a tax deduction. Uh, In our culture, it is that, and that's kind of nice, donations. But in the biblical worldview, uh, giving to others is primarily a way that we walk in the truth. It's not the only way that we walk in the truth, but John connects those together. Giving to others is a way of walking in the truth, partnering in the truth. It's a testimony to God's goodness in your life. It's a practical way to say, I believe the truth of the gospel, and I'm going to show it. We put our money where our mouth is to show the world our commitment to the generosity and the gospel of Jesus. So, John leads us to ask this uncomfortable question. Are you generous? Are you generous? See, the standard for giving money in the Bible to support the church or missionaries or give to the poor, it isn't a certain dollar amount. It's not even a certain percentage. The standard is, are you generous? Because Jesus commented as He was watching people give that the widow who gave a a few pennies was the generous one. Are you generous? When people look at how you spend your money, what would they say is most important to you? And if we are honest, and including myself, if we are honest and we say, I'm not generous, or at least it's not as generous as God is, then it leads to this follow-up question, why not? Why not? See, Jesus tells us that our treasure reveals our heart, so we ask the follow-up question, why does my heart resist a life of generosity? What is it in my heart? If I truly believe the truth that God gave up His own life to save me, then why doesn't my heart respond to that truth in the proper way? Why doesn't it respond with a generous love towards others? So, as your pastor, I don't just want you to give 10% of your money to good causes. I want you to give your whole heart to God because He is generous toward you. And then I want His generosity to flow through you towards others. So at Rock Hill, we see generosity as a key element of faithfulness as a disciple of Jesus. It's not the only element of faithfulness, but it is a key one, and Jesus talks about it a lot. Generosity is not the only standard of obedience, but it is a standard that we have. It's an area of obedience. It's why we do an Advent conspiracy campaign every year to raise money and then give it all away. And Kyle's going to come up and talk about that a little bit later. It's why we ask all of our members to contribute financially to the church. And then every now and then, if our members are not giving anything, we'll have a conversation with them and ask them, here's how this conversation goes. Hey, we noticed that you haven't given anything recently. Is everything going okay? Do you have a financial need that we as the church can be generous toward in in caring for you? Or are you resisting giving because there's something deeper that's going on? As John says, generosity towards others is a faithful thing. 
It's a reflection of God's goodness and grace and generous, lavish love toward us. So that's generosity, but what about hospitality? Hospitality means being welcoming and inviting with our our homes and our time, making it easy for people in the church and then our neighbors as well to come in, to eat a meal with us, to stay the night, to join our family even on a temporary basis. Now, in the upper Midwest, I think we're mostly fine inviting folks over for dinner, especially if we like them, although it often takes a little while to build up that trust. But in my experience, even then, there comes a point where you hit a line and you don't want to cross that comfort level. You don't want to invite people into your life more deeply. We have to imagine ourselves as Gaius here. Imagine your doorbell ringing after dinner one evening, and there stands a complete stranger. You've never seen them before. They've got a note in their hand, uh, uh, allegedly by a mutual friend, that says, hey, would you be able to take them in for a few days, a few weeks? And imagine in the scenario that you don't have a phone to text your friend and, you know, say, is this legit? What would you do? What would you do with the complete stranger standing there saying, hey, we have a friend in common, and he said you would be able to take me in for a little while. I'm not exactly sure how long. What would you do in that scenario? It, see, the, the letter of Third John is not dealing with massive doctrinal issues, like the letter to the Romans or something like that. It's a pretty mundane issue in the grand scheme of things, but for John, whether we are hospitable or not is a matter of faithfulness to the gospel. And in our individualistic and distrusting modern society, something as basic as having someone over for dinner or having someone stay the night with you, it might be the most effective witness for the gospel that you can do. I recommend Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a short little book that's just very practical in talking about hospitality in the church. And she wrote, let God use your home, your apartment, your dorm room, your front yard, your community gymnasium, your garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. That's the heart that embodies truth and love. So here's a question for you to ponder this week. Who does God want me to welcome? Who is figuratively or literally outside of my home, outside of my life, and how can I invite them in? Who's outside of my city group community, and what would happen if I extended an invitation? One of my favorite verses is Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. See, Jesus didn't just dine with people he agreed with and liked. He refilled the water cup of tax collectors. He passed the salt prostitutes. That's hospitality. Rock Hill, I'm, I'm really encouraged whenever I'm greeting at one of the front doors and I see a visitor come in, somebody who's here for the first time, and maybe I talk with them briefly or maybe they just walk on in. And then, and then what usually happens is that during the fellowship time when we're all talking with one another, I see one of our members go over and talk to that person. I think we're actually pretty good at that. So, so uh, faithfulness in, there, in this area is a call not to lose that sense of friendliness, but to take it a step further and invite people into more and more relationship with you, more and more relationship with the church and with God. It's a hospitality that makes you uncomfortable. It's a generosity that makes you uncomfortable. 
But that discomfort is how we as a church go from just saying with our mouths that we value truth and love to actually embodying it together as the people of God. So that's the encouragement and the challenge that John gives. What about the warning? Let's look at the second half. We're going to read verses 9 and 10 again. Verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So now we come to the second reason why John is writing. The first is to commend Gaius for the way he's treated the missionaries and and encouraging him to continue. And the second is to call it at a really confusing time when Christians were expected to host and support traveling Christians, even those they didn't personally know. They were also expected to refuse hospitality to those who preached a false message. That's what we talked about last week in 2 John. But here, John is focusing not on false teachers outside of the church, but on ungodly, unhealthy people inside the church. Like Kyle said last week, Paul in Acts 20 predicted this kind of thing happening. And unfortunately, a lot of churches today are overly concerned about sin outside the church, the sinners out there, while ignoring the issues that are inside the family. We don't know anything about Diotrephes other than what we have here. It seems like he was probably a significant leader in this network of churches, and John had probably spoken to him already about his attitude and being rejected. He alludes to that in there. And John names really one central issue. He boils it down to this issue in Diotrephes' heart. He likes to put himself first. We know what that kind of person looks like, right? The conversation just somehow, no matter what you're talking about, it always comes back to Diotrephes. Whatever the church is doing, Diotrephes needs to be at the center of it and in control of it. And if everything goes well in the church, then it's a reflection of him and his greatness. If it goes poorly, then it's somebody else's fault. And John mentions that this self-centeredness and selfishness led to rejecting John's authority as a spiritual leader, led to bad-mouthing church leaders, spreading lies and gossip, and worst of all, at least in John's mind, refusing to welcome the brothers, the missionaries, even wanting to kick people out of the church for being hospitable. And we don't know why Diotrephes did these things, but regardless of the reasons, John says he has to be confronted. Verse 10 is about as anti-Minnesotan as you can get. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Wait, John, are you sure you don't want to like let it slide, and maybe make some passive-aggressive comments and handle it that way? (laughs) No. What Diotrephes is doing is a threat to the truth of the gospel, and it's a source of confusion in the church. His behaviors are serious and damaging, and so with the authority of Jesus, John is going to call Diotrephes to repent and change his ways. For some of you who have church hurt, or who come from a background, a church background, where a lot of things were tolerated and nothing was called out, I'm guessing that it would have been really powerful, really meaningful, maybe prevented a lot of pain if someone like John had stepped up to confront someone who's doing what Diotrephes did. Avoiding conflict isn't godly. 
neither seeking out conflict unnecessarily, but addressing conflict in a direct and an honest in a wise and loving way, that is godly. John continues in verse 11, which is kind of the main command in this letter. Josh read it at the beginning. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Just put it very simply. Do what's right, because we belong to God. And if someone is continually and unrepentantly doing evil things, they're clearly demonstrating that they don't know God. They have some things to learn about the gospel again. Don't descend to Diotrephes' level of whisper campaigns and lies. It's pretty simple what you need to do. Don't overcomplicate it. Challenge him. Confront him. Now, of course, some church conflicts are complex. There needs to be wisdom to sort out disagreements, especially when there are two people who are trying to serve the Lord and work out their conflict. But sometimes it's not that complicated, because in this case, there's one person who is just trying to serve himself. And in that case, we do what is right rather than what is easy. We tell them that what they're doing is wrong. We warn them. We plead with them. And then if they still put themselves first and insist on that, then we let them do what they want to do. They just can't do it in here, in the church. See, we don't worship and serve anyone but Jesus, and we don't tolerate anyone in the church saying that you should worship and serve me, especially if that harms others. Love and truth are embodied by doing what is good, not what is evil. In fact, it would be neither loving nor truthful to ignore or tolerate what Diotrephes is doing. Love and truth demand that we address it. I love where John goes next in verse 12. It's kind of an abrupt switch. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. We're getting a little wink from John here. See, who puts himself first in the church? Diotrephes does. But does Demetrius put himself first? No, it's others who elevate him. See, for both Gaius and Demetrius, those around them see their way of life and honor them. Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips, because we are all so prone to use our own words, to use our lives, to build up our own reputation in pride. Jesus said that his followers would honor the lowest and recognize the humblest. This is, this is the upside-down community of God's people who aren't… we aren't impressed by forceful personalities. We aren't impressed by aggressive tactics. We aren't impressed by spiritual giftedness that just directs attention back at itself. We aren't impressed by pretty eloquence that just speaks lies. No, what we are impressed by most in the church is Christ-like humility. Jesus, or John ends uh, similarly to how he ends Second John. I, I had much to write to you, but I want to see you face to face, so we're going to try and do that soon. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. The, the Quakers kind of took this verse and ran with it, being the friends. Uh, but I love how the Scriptures use both the language of family and friendship to describe our relationships. We are a church family. We're also partners, colleagues. We work side by side with each other in truth and love. 
Let's go back to our main question, because now we can fill in the whole picture from 3 John. What does it look like when we embody truth and love in the humble goodness? Humble goodness. The issue is really who we elevate as leaders and what we're willing to tolerate. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, your culture is what you tolerate. Does Rock Hill tolerate babies crying in the service? We do, yeah, because we want it to be part of our culture that we celebrate babies and support families and parents. Do we tolerate people coming in late to the service? We could just lock the doors right at like 1045, uh, but that would create a culture that we don't want. Do we tolerate someone in leadership who consistently puts themselves first, who puts others down behind their backs, who refuses hospitality and won't listen? No, we won't tolerate that because it doesn't align with what we value and how God calls us to live. See, Diotrephes loved to lead, but he didn't want to be led. And that's a red flag. That's a warning sign. Someone who wants to lead but doesn't want to be led. We have a saying here at Rock Hill that we don't put anyone in authority who isn't willing to be under authority. And that includes me and Kyle and the elders and city group leaders and our worship leaders and youth group leaders and kids church leaders. We are all servants of Jesus Christ. And the life that Jesus calls us to live is one that is committed to humility, to putting others before yourself. That's maturity in the Christian life. We're called to do what is good rather than what is expedient or comfortable or popular. And so I charge you this week with what John charges you. Imitate what is good. Do not tolerate what is evil. Yes, there is grace for the repentant sinner, including grace for this guy who is preaching. If someone is putting themselves first and then are confronted and they repent and they say, you know what, you're right. I say I follow Jesus, but the way I've been living isn't consistent with that. Please forgive me. Of course there is grace upon grace upon grace for that. But by all indications, that's not what was happening with Diotrephes. Grace is not an excuse to ignore godly confrontation out of a heart of love. And so let me ask you this question. Is there a conversation that you've been avoiding that you need to have soon? Is there a brother or a sister who is unrepentant about their sin and you need to warn them in love? Now, our instinct is sometimes to, well, that's the job of the pastors or the elders, you know, let, let them come down from on high and, you know, wield the judgment of God to call sinners to repent and that sort of thing. And there are situations where church leaders need to step in, but most often in the church, we are told to admonish one another as brothers and sisters because we have, you have relationships that give you access to a person's life. You can see what their life day by day, whereas I or Kyle can't. And so, you have an open window, an open invitation to your Christian brothers and sisters to say, I, I see a cliff over here, and I think you're heading toward it. Please don't. Please come back. And then there's times that they won't listen to me. You bring in more people. Please don't go that way. And sometimes the church leadership, and we ask God for courage in all of this to embody truth and love and to restore people gently. This is just basic Christian practice for when we sin, because we are sinners. And yet we are also given a call to embody truth and love in this. Humble goodness, generous hospitality. There's nothing earth-shattering 
in the letter of 3 John, but it is a powerful window into what our church could look like if we embody truth and love. I mentioned at the beginning that 3 John is the only New Testament book that doesn't mention Jesus by name, although verse 7 references the name, which is how early Christians referred to Jesus. Uh, as opposed to other letters like Romans or Ephesians that explain what Christ did for us, 3 John instead gives us an example of Christ-likeness. It holds up those qualities and those attributes that Jesus Himself embodied, and it says, church family, church friends, followers of Jesus, live as He did. But when we hear that command, we immediately need to confess that we fall short. We hear that high command of embody truth and love, generous hospitality and humble goodness, and then we say, I don't do that, or when I do it, it's so infrequent. I'm a failure in this, in my sanctification. I have a lot of room to grow. See, we might not like it, but we are diatrophies far more often than we'd like to admit. How often do I put myself first, insisting on my own way, considering my reputation rather than honoring and building up others, hoarding resources for myself rather than giving to others with an open heart and mind and hands, using my words to lift myself up and tear others down, wanting to follow my own authority, what I think is best, rather than the authority of God or the leaders that God has given me, acting self-righteously as though I've arrived and achieved godliness rather than recognizing the ways I have not loved God or my neighbor as myself. What do we do when we see in our own lives that wide gap between truth and love, the truth we say we believe, the truth we don't live out, the love we say we value, the love we don't live out? The answer is we turn to the one who is truth and is love. Jesus loved us before we existed, and He loves us in truth. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your pride. He knows all of your humility. And He Himself was the embodiment of shalom and wellness. He was the only one who walked in the truth perfectly, who welcomed sinners and sufferers into close relationship, who poured Himself out for the sake of others. The generosity of Jesus, though, led to His death. And indeed, all generosity leads to a kind of death as we give of ourselves for others. Evil people spoke wicked nonsense against Jesus and did not acknowledge His authority as the King of the world, and not content with that, they executed Him. But evil could not keep Jesus down. He rose, and now His perfect life and goodness are given to us for our salvation, washing away the penalty of our selfishness, of all the ways that we put ourselves first and giving us all new life together, where now nobody needs to be put first except Jesus. And now we can fall behind Him and serve Him because my identity and my value is not found in putting myself first, pushing others behind me. It's found at falling at the feet of Jesus trusting in what He says about me, what He's given me. So, if you are lost this morning and you don't know where you're going, if you're evil and you don't know how to change, if you are lonely and you're longing for a friend, Jesus welcomes you this morning. He says, I can give you everything that you are looking for. 
You can't achieve goodness on your own. You can't follow verse 11 on your own. You can't imitate what is good. You need the one who is good. Believe that He is the Savior, that He can wash away your sin, that He can give you life. And then join us, a a family that is flawed and messy, but we are united by our commitment to walk in the truth and love. So, church family, my, my heart for you as your pastor is that you would take the smallest book of the Bible and let it grow in you. Listen to its words. Hear its challenge. Imitate the goodness you see here, and ultimately imitate the person of Jesus. And in the power and the name of Jesus, live together in generosity and hospitality and humility and goodness. Let me pray for the Lord's grace and help in this. Father God, You are good and holy and perfect, and we are not. We are sinners. We have rebelled against You by word and deed. Our very hearts are far from You until You come after us and pull us closer to You. Jesus, thank You for Your perfect life, for Your perfect death, for Your perfect resurrection that now gives us life. May we be a community of truth and love so that when people look at us, they see You. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen.